Thank you, Charlie and Mary. Um, <clears throat> that song fit so well with the topic today of, uh, it really speaks to our perseverance. Uh, the name of Jesus isn't, certainly isn't a magic word. Uh, but when we speak the name of Jesus, when we call upon our Father, we're calling upon the person and work of Jesus and, uh, and, and our fears are, uh, are relieved. Our sorrows are relieved when we, when we realize who we are and, and what God has done, uh, for us and is doing in us. Uh, so, uh, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Certain passages of Scripture um, are kind of softballs for a uh, kind of once-in-a-while preacher like I am. Uh, so I get the benefit of not having to uh, preach sequentially through uh, through Matthew, but uh, just uh, am so impressed with uh, our our pastor Chris, who who got four sermons out of uh, largely just skimmed uh, chapter of the Bible. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was amazing. And, uh, I will not get four sermons out of, uh, Romans five, one through five, but I would like, uh, to read it with you. And, uh, and so this, this, uh, text is not really a, a softball theologically speaking, but from, from a preacher's standpoint, this text preaches itself. And uh, Scott pretty much preached my introduction, so uh, I can start in the middle and we can go home early, right? <laughs> but follow along, follow along as I read. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Father in heaven, I pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word to our hearing this morning, that you would open blind eyes, you would open deaf ears, and that you would save the lost today. For your glory alone, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, Last last week or so, Chris sent a, a little questionnaire to the elders uh, and some other brothers in the church. Uh, ask and it's some questions to ponder. And one of the questions uh, was, "What aspect of the Bible or theology are you most comfortable teaching?" And I decided that it would be soteriology or the the theology of salvation. Uh, I've given much thought and study uh, to this topic. I think probably because um, I've 
I've struggled uh, as a believer with assurance of salvation. If you listen to our podcast from a few weeks ago, we, we discussed this, and it was my turn to host. Um, but... Uh, and I even had a friend, I had a friend go to seminary, not Michael, but I had a, another friend go to seminary just to, uh, just to wrestle with whether or not he was actually saved. Uh, it was Southern Seminary, by the way, and, and he, he did find out that he, in fact, is saved. Uh, but, you know, since coming to a reformed uh, understanding of the scriptures, I've been fascinated by the uh, ordo salutis. It's a fancy Latin word for order of salvation, and we believe that scripture teaches that there is a there is a logical order of the events of salvation, even even though chronologically. They may be imperceptible. Uh, it's it's not uh, well. One week this happens, and then another. Uh, you know, ten business days later, then then this uh, this next event happens. So that we think chronologically, uh, a lot of these events can be imperceptible. We can't tell them apart. So, in very simplified terms, by way of introduction, I, I want to walk you through the Ordo Salutis, and uh, it starts way back. Before the foundation of the world, with God's unconditional election, uh, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. That's Ephesians one, uh, Ephesians one, and this was a great comfort to me as someone who I've grown up in the church. Uh, you know, I, I I made a profession of faith at an early age, and uh, but I didn't I didn't come to understand this until. Maybe my thirties. And so there's always this wrestling with, okay, so I asked Jesus into my heart. I said, I love you, Jesus. But did he say yes? Did he, did he actually come in? Did he, did he actually come and, and, and unite, uh, unite me to him? I, I don't know. But, this doctrine of, of unconditional election before the foundation of the world gave such comfort because I knew we, you can't come to God. You can't come to Jesus unless he has drawn you to him, unless he has uh, chosen that you would be his. So the next step on that uh, is the atoning sacrifice of Christ at the cross. I'll get into more of that later. But um, the next step is the outward call. And the outward call of the gospel is the, the preaching of the gospel. This is by God's, uh, you know, if God wills, this is what I'll be doing today. I'll be presenting you with the gospel. Um, and and pleading with you to repent and believe. But the outward call is only experienced with our physical ears. It goes in our ears and to our brain. But the inward call following uh, regeneration by the Holy Spirit, where, where, where the Holy Spirit removes our heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh. Uh, when, when you hear the gospel call, it goes beyond your ears and your brain, and you hear it with your heart. 
This is the inward call of the Holy Spirit. It's conviction of sin and judgment and need for a Savior. And I can't do that for you. I can tell you that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, but I can't convince or convict you. That's way above my pay grade. So the inward call leads to faith and repentance, which leads to justification and adoption, sanctification and glorification. So, as I said, we believe there there is a logical order to this, even though chronologically on a timeline, it's hard to tell these uh, these events apart. But my sermon today will be focused on what the the Apostle Paul writes in Romans five about justification by faith, and we'll define both of those terms: sanctification. And although that word is not specifically used, it's heavily implied. And uh, I'll tell you why later. And glorification. Again, a term not used specifically. But I'll tell you how this passage teaches the doctrine of of glorification. Uh, Although I hope to give you a good understanding of the scripture, my aim today is to bring to light what I believe that God through the pen of the Apostle Paul wants to work in our lives today. And that's peace, hope, and joy. Peace, hope, and joy. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking that I'm I'm either the most uniquely qualified or uniquely unqualified to preach this. Um, Because I've really struggled with peace and hope and joy especially recently since uh since last September when my mom died uh and going through those those early stages of grief we we experienced those first um those first holidays uh without without my mom and then uh coming back uh in this new year and then there's this little thing called a global pandemic and it seems like we don't know we don't know who's telling the truth. We don't know what to believe. Uh, we don't know how to respond. Uh, businesses are shut down. People are losing their livelihoods. Uh, even you, you, you may have uh, experienced the, the, the real uh, physical and emotional trauma of this time. And I, and I certainly have. I'm with you in that. Um, and and I'm just as a confession, I, I feel like I've I've lost that peace. I, I have not kept my eyes on Jesus during this time. I've lost sight of him. I've uh, I've confessed to, to others that I've just felt depressed, just this low level depression and and anger even. Um, and uh, so. There you have it. I'm, I'm either uniquely qualified to preach this or uniquely unqualified, but uh, no matter what, I'm going to preach it. And um, Because peace and hope and joy don't come from listening to our hearts, but in speaking truth to them. So I, I'm preaching to myself this morning and uh, hopefully preaching to you as well. So without out of, the, out of the way, let's start at the beginning in verse 1 with the word, therefore. Any good student of the Bible, when he or she sees the word therefore, needs to ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? Therefore what? 
But Paul has written four chapters so far on the futility of trying to justify yourself by works of the law and the necessity for faith for justification. And chapter 5 builds on this argument and lays out the benefits of, just, of justification. But let's go back and dig into a, a couple of definitions. First, justification. That's a legal term. It's a once and for all declaration before God. It's a declaration of righteousness, of, of purity. But the problem with that is that we know we're not righteous. We know ourselves. We know ourselves to be sinners. We know ourselves to be guilty in the court of God's divine justice. But in God's mercy... Our guilt, our shame, our condemnation is blotted out based on the work of another, the perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need only back up one verse to see that. He was delivered over. He being Jesus. He was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. The basis of our justification is not our good works. It's not our goodness. It's not helping old ladies across the street. It's not being nice to dogs. The basis of our justification is the perfect life, the brutal death, and the glorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's like the song says, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just one, is satisfied to look on Him and what? And pardon me. According to the doctrine of justification, God considers the work of Jesus alone to be sufficient to atone for our guilt. Jesus bore the punishment and we get the reward. God looks on the perfect righteousness of his son and credits it to our account by faith. We are counted as righteous. That's justification. And it's justification by faith. That's our next definition, the word faith. Hebrews 11 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. It's how you see what you can't see. It's how to hold what you can't touch. That's faith. Faith also carries with it the idea of putting your weight down on something that can hold you. Now, um... I'm kind of a big guy. And there are just some chairs that make me nervous. (laughs) I sit down with great inner turmoil, uh, not knowing if that chair is going to hold me up. Now, the worst offenders you find often at outdoor weddings. You know what I'm talking about? It's these, uh, they're white PVC chairs, folding chairs. They're terrible. Um, The wooden ones are even worse. But in contrast, I have confidence sitting in my office chair. I did the research. I looked at the weight limit. I read, look, I read the reviews. I've examined it. I can sit down every time and know that it will hold me up. This is a, uh, this is a limited and, you know, a somewhat silly picture of faith. But faith is choosing where to stand or sit or rest. 
It's confidence. It's belief. It's trust. And like another song says, my faith has found a resting place. Not in device or scheme. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Before uh, before we go on, I want to clarify something with a statement that might actually sound controversial at first, but hopefully with some explanation, it'll it'll be clearer. Um, and it's this: faith does not save. Uh, rather, faith in and of itself does not save. Uh, now you may be saying, "Now wait a minute, uh, what about sola fide?" Uh, and all that stuff. You know, you even printed it on a shirt. Uh, it says right there on the shirt, faith alone. But let's be clear. It is God who saves. God is the one who saves on the basis of faith. Everyone has faith in something or another thing. Even atheists have faith. It could be argued that atheists have more faith than Christians. Because they believe that there is no God in spite of so much evidence to the contrary. But faith itself does not save. Faith in faith is a, is a, just a feeling. Faith in faith is futile. Only faith in Christ results in justification. Faith is believing God. In chapter 4, Paul paraphrases Genesis 15.6 that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified by faith. Not in faith, but he was justified by faith in God. And what what does it mean to believe God? It means to believe what God says about you and what Jesus did for you. So what does God say? He says you're a sinner. According to the family line of Adam, you were born with his sin. You are not a good person, but a wretch deserving of wrath, deserving of eternal divine punishment. But, but... What Jesus did, he took your sin upon him and bore it to the cross. He died for you, bearing the punishment for your sin. Now think about this with me. Um, Jesus took all of the punishment for all eternity, for all the sin, past, present, and future that you would commit. It was endured by Jesus in the span of a few hours as he agonized on the cross. We'll never fully grasp the cost of our sin being placed on Jesus and him bearing the eternal wrath of God on our behalf. So, instead of punishment, God gives you instead his righteousness and hope of glory. So a question for you... Uh, that, that you may be wrestling with is how much faith do I need in order to be saved? How much faith? I'm sure that many of you have wrestled with this, with this question is if faith in God says, well, how much faith in God is required? And it's a trick question. Um, it's the wrong question to ask, in fact. And I don't want to be, uh, glib about it, but, uh, 
let me tell you a story to illustrate. If you recall, when God's chosen people were slaves in Egypt, God sent ten plagues of increasing severity on the Egyptians, but Pharaoh would not let God's people go. The tenth plague was the worst. God himself would go through the land of Egypt and strike down the firstborn of every household. Only those families who sacrificed a spotless lamb and painted its blood on their doorposts would be spared. Now, imagine if you will, sanctified imagination, two Israelite men talking about what Moses had just communicated to them. One of the men was very excited. He was very sincere. He just knew for certain that this was going to happen just as Moses had told them. And the other man was doubtful and though, and thought, hey, this is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Uh, but he decided to trust and obey. He'd seen the other plagues. Both men sacrificed their lambs, painted the blood on their door frames. One sincere, one doubting. Which one was spared? The one for whom faith came easily? Or the one who was plagued with doubt but trusted anyway? Both of them. I heard it. Both of them were spared. They both believed the promise of the Lord spoken through Moses and they were both spared. The story is to illustrate that it's not the amount or sincerity of faith that matters. What matters is the object of your faith. Only faith in the person and work of Christ saves a sinner. So before we go on, let me ask you a question. Where is your faith? Not how strong is your faith, not how sincere is your faith, but where is your faith? Jesus asked this of his disciples when they were uh, terribly frightened by a storm on the sea. It's in Luke chapter 8. He asked them, not, why do you have so little faith? He, He also asked them that at other times. But he asked them, where is your faith? What are you trusting in? Is your life built on the rock of Christ or are you trusting in his, are you trusting in his blood and righteousness alone for your salvation? Are you trying to earn God's acceptance by your good works? Trusting in yourself is a sandy foundation that will crumble when the storms of life rage against you. But on a solid foundation of Christ, your house can withstand the raging storms that will surely come. Will you sing this song with me? The words will be up here. I'm sure you know it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. So building on that foundation, here are three benefits of justification by faith. And uh, Abraham will put these up on the screen, but it's peace with God, the hope of glory, and joy in trials. So number one, peace with God. Uh, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
The first benefit of justification by faith that Paul mentions is peace with God. So let's define this term, peace. Well, Webster defines peace as the absence of war or other hostilities. An agreement or a treaty to end hostilities. And freedom from quarrels and disagreement or harmonious relations. The word here corresponds to the Hebrew word shalom. And this is no mere ceasefire, right? God doesn't just uh, stop uh, being angry for, for a moment, but we're, we're just waiting for that peace to break down. No, this is more than an absence of conflict. Shalom peace is complete and eternal safety of mind, body, and estate. It's completeness and tranquility. It's reconciliation with God because His divine wrath has been removed and replaced with divine favor. You see, the natural man is at war with God. In our natural state, we are enemies of God. Chris talked last week about getting off the fence and declaring allegiance to Christ. That's because there really is no middle ground. You can't think well of God and not give your life to Him. You're either at peace with God through Christ or you're at war with Him in your sin. The fence is the war zone. There's a story about God and Satan coming to collect their people from a pasture. Uh, God comes and collects His people. Satan comes to gather His and then comes back for the people on the fence. And one says, hey, on a, whoa, wait a minute. I, I haven't decided yet. I'm on, I'm on the fence. And Satan says, nah, I own the fence. Satan owns the fence. There is no middle ground. You're either with God, you're, you're a, a son, a daughter, a friend of God, or you're his enemy. And he is the worst of enemies. Because he will absolutely destroy you. If you are trusting in your own righteousness, his wrath will be poured out on you for all eternity. And you can't be good enough. You can't earn even a bit of your salvation. Jesus doesn't just top off your righteousness. He becomes your righteousness. Jesus will be all of your righteousness or none of it. Because he will not share his glory with another. It's his salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You can face him on your own and bear the punishment, or you can trust in the sacrifice of his son and be clothed in his righteousness and see the smiling face of your father in heaven who looks upon you and sees the son with whom he is well pleased. If you are in Christ, if you have died with Him, you have been raised with Him, God has no more anger toward you. How could He? It has all been poured out on Jesus. And all that's left is grace. All that's left is God's unmerited favor. Merited by Christ. When Christ received the punishment He didn't deserve so that you can get the blessing that you don't deserve. Faith in Christ is the key that grants us access, our introduction to the vast ocean of God's grace. Grace that justifies us. Grace that sanctifies us. Grace that glorifies us. God is like the father who runs to the prodigal now, throws his arms 
open and embraces his son who has come home. As Dane Ortland says in his book, Gentle and Lowly, if you are in Christ, his posture towards you is not a pointed finger, but open arms. This is good news. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The legalist will never experience peace because he is too preoccupied with his own righteousness, which always leaves him vacillating between pride and self-loathing. If you are trying to earn your own salvation, you're, you're always comparing yourself. Am I, am I enough? Am I not enough? And so when you're enough, you're prideful. If you're not enough, you're hating yourself. And the sinner never experiences peace because he is ignorant of his sin. As John Calvin says, he is not disquieted because he is inebriated with the sweetness of his vices. Do you have peace with God? You can today. Believe God. Turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ. The second benefit of justification by faith is the hope of glory. Second part of verse 2 says, We exult in hope of the glory of God. What Paul is saying with this phrase is that having been justified by faith, we rejoice one day that we will see Jesus face to face and be perfect as he is perfect. We will be sinless and complete. God will have finished the work that he started when we were justified. Paul was convinced of this as he wrote the Philippian church. I am confident in this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So certain was Paul that God would finish what he began, that he wrote about it later in the same letter to the Romans. And he wrote about it in the past tense. Look at Romans eight twenty-eight to 30. Many of you can possibly, probably quote this by memory. Here is Paul's short treatise on the certainty of the complete work of God's grace. Verse 28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. He speaks of glorification in the past tense. We who are in, in Christ by faith have the hope of sinless perfection, the hope of glory. We have the unshakable certainty that we will walk and talk with God in perfect relationship as it was in Eden, but better, better than Eden because we will be perfectly righteous and sin will never disturb again. God is making all things new. Isaiah 65, 17 says, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. My friend, brother, sister, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has in store for those who love Him. And as awesome as you think it will be to live in glory with God, I want you to think again. 
and again and again and again. And you still won't come close to how awesome it will be to be in God's presence face to face, knowing him as he knows us. Being known. We see now through a glass, but then face to face. We have this hope as an anchor, steadfast and certain, that God will complete the good work begun in us and take us home to be with Him forever. This one point could be a whole sermon, um, but time doesn't permit. So, um, and even if it did, I would still only be scratching the surface. And, uh, for, you know, for a further explanation of this, I, I really recommend, uh, you go back and listen to Chris's Easter sermon, uh, it's t- entitled What Happens When You Die. And you can find it on our website. But we exult in this hope. We boast in this hope. We don't boast in ourselves. We boast in the Lord. We take joy in this, that no matter what comes our way, we rejoice that there is a better day coming. We rejoice that there is a reward. There is a payoff. We who are justified by faith, it is, we, we have a future that is secure and glorious. The glory of the future helps us in our present. And that brings us to our third benefit, joy in trials. As I said earlier, we would look at justification, sanctification, and glorification in more detail. And while Paul didn't use the word glorification uh, in this passage, it was heavily implied in the previous point. And the same for sanctification in this next point. We look at how and why we can rejoice in trials. And and just as a review, justification is a legal declaration. It is a once and for all legal declaration of righteousness, right? It's imputed righteousness. It's credited to your account, but it is not imparted righteousness. It is, we're not functionally godly. We're not functionally righteous when we, when we are justified. That is, that is sanctification. It's a process by which we are made, uh, more and more in the image of Christ. And much ink has been uh, spent on the topic of rejoicing in the midst of trials and the work of God in trials. James 1 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. First Peter 1 says, In this, in glorification, in this future salvation, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, sanctification, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus is going to honor us when he sees us face to face. We can rejoice in trials. We can rejoice in tribulations or suffering because God is at work producing something in us that we could never produce in ourselves. And that's practical godliness, Christ-likeness. You know, many people think that God declares us righteous and then just leaves us alone to, to grow in godliness. And that couldn't be uh, further from the truth. They, they love Philippians 2.12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? But we forget 
that there's also Philippians 2.13, for it is God at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I can't stress this point enough. God always finishes what he starts. He will use any means necessary to conform us to the image of his son. Paul wrote a pretty all-encompassing list of trials and uh, tribulations and suffering in Romans 8, 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Will COVID-19 separate you from his love? Will job loss separate you from his love? Will trials and and temptations separate you from his love? You know, here's something that's important to remember. Something that many new Christians aren't prepared for. As I said earlier, if you're outside of Christ, God is your enemy and he is undefeated and he is undefeatable. When you make peace with God by faith... God is no longer your enemy. And that's a wonderful thing, but it comes with this caveat. Because now instead of having one enemy, you have three. When you move out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, your old gang comes looking for you. They're not happy that you've left them and they're trying to get you back. They can't, by the way, because he that is in you is greater than he who is in the world. But your new enemies who used to be friends, are the world, the flesh, and the devil. All the trials and tribulations that we experience as Christians can be categorized under these headings. The world, worldly values, worldly wisdom, worldly ridicule, worldly systems that are in opposition to God's loving command. Worldly wisdom is pragmatic. It's expedient. It does what's easy over and against doing what's right. It's David moving the ark of God on an ox cart because it was easier than using poles as God had commanded. It's Ananias and Sapphira holding back some of the proceeds of their sale of the land while claiming that they were giving all the money to the church. It's resorting to clever gimmicks to get people into the doors of church. It's capitulating to the shifting sands of culture instead of standing up for biblical truth. It's cooking your books in order to pay less tax. It's working too many hours with no days of rest in order to advance your career. It's regularly forsaking the meeting of God's people because of sports or hobbies or just me time. It's indenturing your soul to the American dream to the point that you don't have the time or the resources to support the work of God in the church. The flesh is a carryover of our old sinful nature. It's pride, it's lust, and the Bible calls it futile ways of thinking. The works of the flesh, Paul lists in uh, Galatians 5, are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, and carousing, 
It's viewing pornography because your spouse isn't fulfilling your needs. It's complaining about your spouse to your friends. It's arguing on social media about religion or politics. It's honking at that idiot who just cut you off. Not to warn him, but to shame him. It's wishing you had a new car like your neighbor. It's accusing mask wearers of being stupid sheep. Or non-mask wearers of being insensitive goats. It's eating or drinking your feelings. And the list goes on. But let's talk about the devil. You have an enemy of your soul who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And if he can't have you, he'll try to take your joy and your peace. He does this by temptation and accusation. And he's really, really good at what he does. He tempts you to sin and he tempts and he tempts. And his temptations don't look unpleasant. They look like apple pie and ice cream. If sin looked pleasant, no one, if sin looked unpleasant, no one would do it. Satan comes disguised as an angel of light. Before his fall, he was the most beautiful angel. And as a result, his temptations look beautiful as well. And if and when you do give in to temptation, he becomes your accuser. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh, he says, you blew it. You must not be a Christian after all. God couldn't possibly love you. Satan plays on the heartstrings that are already tuned to him. If you're an insecure person, he plays on those strings. If you're an angry person, he plays on those strings. If you're a depressed person, he plays on those strings. If you're prideful, he plays on your pride. Satan, we know, also influences kings and world leaders, causing them to persecute the followers of God, causing them to shut down churches, causing leaders in China to bulldoze Uh, Christian churches. The list goes on of, of all his activity. But here is the good news. These foes are able to be defeated. 1 John 5, 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Faith in the promises of God gives us victory over worldly wisdom and thinking. Believing what God says of us and what Jesus did for us. Trusting that God is not holding any good thing. Or if He is, it's not without good reason. And it's the reason that we just can't see yet. It's trusting in the goodness and kindness of God. Gets our eyes off of worldly thinking sets our eyes, our minds on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. About the flesh, Paul says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The idea of crucifying your flesh and and not gratifying your flesh is to be so filled with the Spirit of God, meditating on the heart of God and the work of Christ, that there is no room in your life to gratify your flesh. 
The Puritans called this the expulsive power of greater affection. Having your mind and your heart so set on Christ that everything pales in comparison. How could I sin when I have a sweet and loving Savior? Sin is bitter in comparison to the sweetness of Christ. It's distasteful. Finally, regarding the devil, James says to resist and he will flee. There's nowhere in Scripture that puts us in an offensive position against the devil. Paul wrote to the the, uh, Ephesian church, take up the full armor of God that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and of the gospel of peace. Oh, I'm sorry, skipped a line. And having shod your feet with preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, which is the sword of the spirit. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. See, the battle belongs to the Lord. And the devil will be defeated, but not by you. At the end of days, the great beast will be thrown once and for all into the lake of fire with all of his demons, and peace will reign. And in the meantime, stand firm in the gospel. Stand firm in your justification by faith. What does all this have to do with our passage? These three enemies do not go down easily. They don't go quietly into the night. God is at work in his people to break the power of canceled sin. And he does it mainly through these trials. When we stand firm, we are strengthened to stand firm again. And when we fail and we cry out to God in repentance, we are strengthened to stand firm again as we experience afresh his heart of love for sinners and sufferers. And this is perseverance. This is endurance. And it leads to proven character. Uh, The word proof or proven here refers to metal that is rid of impurity by increasing amounts of heat. Impurities are, are skimmed off until the refiner can see his reflection in, uh, in the metal. We are proven and tested and proven and tested and proven and tested until we reflect the character of Christ. So don't be discouraged by the fiery trial because God is at work. And finally, proving character leads to hope that will not disappoint. We can rejoice in tribulations knowing that it will be worth it all. We will not be disappointed when we see Jesus and hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. We know this is true. Our hope is established because the Holy Spirit has sealed us for that day and pours the love of God in our hearts. God's love, my friends, isn't measured out by drop. It's measured out in buckets. It's poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Going back to the courtroom analogy. In a human court, an exonerated defendant is dismissed and free to go. But in God's court, when we're declared righteous by faith, we're adopted and free to come. 
We're free to come to Him. We're free to come to His home. We're free to come to His table. We're free to come to His side. God moves from being our judge to being our Father. One more note about adoption, and I'll, I'll close with this. It's a sad reality, but human adoptions sometimes fail. Uh, in our broken and sinful world, some children are just so traumatized that they never, they don't bond with their adoptive families. And it's, uh, adoptive parents, they long, they long to impart their love and, and some aspect of their character onto that adopted child. And, and sometimes it works to varying degrees and sometimes it just doesn't. And when it doesn't, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's devastating. But I'll leave you with this. God never fails. God never fails to impart his love and his character into the hearts of his children. And this, brothers and sisters, is hope that you can bank on. This is peace that you can rest in. And this is truth that you can rejoice in. We pray with me. Our Father in heaven, what hope, what peace, what joy is ours because the wrath that we deserved was placed on Christ. Father, I pray that if there is anyone in this room, if there is anyone listening in the Family Life Center or on live stream, who has not placed their faith in the work of Christ on their behalf to save sinners. Not good people, not righteous people. He came to save sinners. Lord, would this be the day? Would you cause them to let go of their uh, their feeble attempts to justify themselves? Let go of their their feeble attempts to save themselves and cast themselves on your mercy. That they would believe the gospel and repent of their self-righteousness. Repent of their imaginary goodness and come to Christ. Oh God, we thank you that because of our justification We have peace with you. We have the hope of glory. We have the hope that we will be with you. That you will finish what you start. And we have peace. We have joy in the midst of trials, knowing that you are at work in us to bring about the nature and character of your Son, Jesus. In his name we pray and for your glory alone. Amen.